Hello and welcome to another episode of BZ Listening. I'm your host, BZ Douglas, and today my guest is John Bonifaz, the president of Free Speech for People, and we are talking about the hot topic of impeachment. Uh, as this episode drops, today is the second day of the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. So, yeah, um, we discuss a lot in this episode, so I'm just going to keep the introduction really short and sweet. Be sure to check out the description for links to follow and support Free Speech for People. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BZDug, that's B-Z-D-U-G, or at BZ Listening, and you can support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash bzdouglas, and maybe you should consider calling your senator and telling them it's finally time to hold a rogue executive accountable, like once. Come on, people. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for listening, and now let's get on with the show. Well, first, I, I want to say, Brian, how appreciative we are of all the great work you've done with our website. Uh, you know, people have really lauded it, and it's a, I know it was a ton of work to revamp our whole site, so thank you. Well, it was, you have a great team over there that's easy to work with. A shout-out to Oski. And, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I was going to, in my introduction, you're actually the first guest of possibly many uh, to come or that I will have to have like that full disclosure moment with <laughs> kind of as I'm like, so yeah. Th so um, yeah, let me introduce you here. Um, I was going to, uh, I have the introduction uh, from the about section of your sure. website, which I uh -huh. built. <laughs> so right. I knew where to find exactly. it. Exactly. Uh, John Bonifance uh, is my guest today. He is the co-founder of Free Speech for People. He previously served as the executive director and then general counsel of the National Voting Rights Institute. And that's an organization he founded in 1994 and also served as the legal director of Voter Action, a national election integrity organization. And yeah, so um, I came to Free Speech. Free Speech for People actually has a special place in my hard as a, uh, you guys as a client because you're you were the first client i had that was outside of the commercial sphere that actually came about through my first foray into journalism working with a group called new york election election justice and um holly lacroix was a part of that team she's actually right. a former guest and so she was working with you and Roots Action on impeachdonaldtrumpnow.org. Right. And you needed a WordPress site. And she's like, hey, Brian does WordPress sites. And then I kind of just gobbled up <laughs> things from there. And yeah, um, I, and so I really have appreciated getting to move into that space more. And as I said, I have future guests coming up, like I, someone's running for office in town and uh, I helped her out building her website. I'm excited to interview her about her run, but I'm going to have to be like, Hey, I'm on, I'm on the payroll just so for what it's worth. But <laughs> well, we've appreciated all your help, Brian, really, you've been great. So can you uh, introduce the audience to Free Speech for People, the purpose of that organization and the work you've done? Sure. Free Speech for People is a national nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. We were launched on the day of the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in January of 2010 in Citizens United v. FEC. This is the ruling, of course, that swept away a century of precedent, barring corporate money in our elections. Uh, and really has set us off on this new course of unlimited 
campaign spending in the country, which is drowning out the voices of ordinary citizens. We started with a constitutional amendment campaign to overturn that ruling and the doctrines underlying that ruling of money equaling speech and corporations being treated as people. Uh, we've also uh, gotten engaged in, in focused in, the, in a fight in the courts around shipping away at Citizens United. And we broaden our legal advocacy work to help protect our elections with voting rights litigation last year in 2020, to take on unchecked corporate power, and to challenge the unprecedented corruption coming into the White House during the Trump administration. Yeah, I really advise everyone to uh, check out the website. Um, if and if you don't like how it works or anything's buggy, please let me know. I'm happy to squash any bugs. But there is so much information about all the work you've done there. Um, I could I've not even taken it all in as someone who helped build your site. Thankfully, you have a team that was able to migrate all that content into a new framework. But um, so the, the big reason I wanted to have you on and, and I wanted, I've wanted to have you on for a while because, um, I, I read your book, uh, the book you co-wrote with Ron Fine and Ben Clements, the constitution demands it, the case for the impeachment of Donald Trump and, uh, refresh my memory. When did you write that? What year? So it was in 2018 and it was yeah. published in August of 2018. Yeah. So I, I wanted to really spend the bulk of this episode having a post-mortem, of Trump's first and hopefully last term in office through the lens of that book and um, confession. I'd, I'd hope to reread it, but I had a big story land in my lap this week that ate up all my time. Okay. And, uh, but uh, I did, I did, I've been, I've been skimming it, but yeah, I'll, I'll have you take me through some of the, some of the arguments again. Um, but I really wanted to go through each of those major arguments and or as many as we have time for and talk about the degree that each one was or wasn't addressed and what the what the implications are going to be if we let these sort of things slide, because right. my number one concern with like impeachment as someone who I became uh, my political consciousness developed under the Bush administration. And I was I remember Dennis Kucinich was trying to push impeachment right at the end of the Bush administration. I was like, yes, this is a good idea. We need to set this precedent. Um, for these things. And uh, I, I f feel that that was correct in that like, there's so many things that were allowed to per be perpetuated. And there's a through line to some of the worst of Trump can do yes. and other administrations can do because we yeah, don't yeah. admonish this. So, yes, um, I guess to start, maybe uh, maybe we can just start with like new grounds for impeachment that you've seen come up since you published this. And the obvious one would be the insurrection at the Capitol and your take on on that ground for impeachment that's getting pushed now. Right, right. So uh, certainly after the publication of that book in August 2018, there were sadly many other new grounds that emerged uh, following that time period. And the most recent was the incitement of an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. Right before that, preceding that insurrection uh, was, in fact, the impeachable offense Trump committed in his phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State the Saturday before that insurrection, which he pressed the Secretary of State of Georgia Republican to find 11,000 plus votes to try to overturn a free and fair election in the presidential vote. Uh, they happened so they happened so fast. I forgot about that yes. one already. Yeah, and in fact, on January fifth, the day before the insurrection, 
the Boston Globe published an op-ed by Ron Fine, Ben Clements, and myself making the case for why there should be new articles of impeachment against the president based on that phone call and all that he had been doing to try to subvert the will of the people and overturn a free and fair election. Then, of course, 24 hours later, we updated uh, that call to include the incitement of a violent, seditious attack on the U.S. Capitol. This is probably the worst uh, impeachment offense that a president can commit, inciting insurrection against another branch of government while it's engaged, literally, in certifying. They're all pretty they're all pretty bad, but you're scraping the bottom of the barrel there. Yes. Yes. And, and and so this president, as we know, leading up to that January 6th insurrection was fomenting a big lie that there was fraud on Election Day in November, uh, that it was an illegitimate election, that he won in a landslide. All of these lies were spread all across the country. Uh, and as every case that he brought ultimately lost before Trump judges, Republican judges, Democratic judges before the Supreme Court, including the three who he nominated who were there. He never he never backed off. He kept going with that lie. Uh, and in fact, in December, pushed out a, a number of tweets saying we're going to we're going to come on January 6th together. It's going to be wild. I want everyone to be there. And then you look at his speech at the rally that preceded the march to the Capitol on January 6th. And he clearly there was inciting the mob to show up at the Capitol and stop the steal, as was the framing of the entire event. And he talked about how Mike Pence needed to do the right thing. And of course, there was no basis whatsoever for Vice President Pence to try to stop the certification of the Electoral College votes. That wasn't his role. It was a ministerial role. He was simply to open up the uh, ballots and and to ask if there were any objections. He has no role under the Constitution beyond that. And yet Trump had been pushing this lie that, that he did have the power to do that. So the mob showed up at the Capitol, incited by Trump to stop the steal. And that's where we saw uh, this violent attack, which really came within minutes of potential assassinations of major uh, congressional leaders. And, and, and it could have been far, far worse. But five people, of course, did die there. A sixth uh, police officer committed suicide, but one Capitol police officer was killed uh, trying to protect himself and the Capitol. And, yeah. and there were, you know, four others who died. And, and this and there were many, many others who were injured. And and this violent attack uh, was clearly uh, an, an abuse of power by this president to incite and is why he needs to be held accountable through the impeachment process, even though he's now left office. The House did the right thing in impeaching him, but the Senate must now do the right thing in convicting him and barring him from ever running for future federal office. Now, in any way, does impeachment set precedence in in any way, or at least like lay a line down to say like, Hey, when you, this is, you can't do this. Like, cause 
that's why, like, you know, with Bush in, you know, my ideal world, if we had, more, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, if there was justice, then they would have been held accountable for the lies that brought us into the war. Yes. And so that we say as a country, this was not OK and we are going to punish the leaders who did this to us. And so is am I right in my thinking that that is that is a, the point of impeachment? It, you are right. And, and we are on the same page on this about. Uh, the Bush administration. I happen to have led a case as lead counsel for uh, former Congressman Dennis Kucinich and former Congressman John Conyers and others, as well as soldiers and parents of soldiers in seeking to stop the illegal and unconstitutional war in Iraq uh, that was based on lies. And it was a lawsuit against both George W. Bush as president and Donald Rumsfeld as then secretary of defense. And then I proceeded to uh, write a book about that case uh, and why impeachment was now necessary for the House to engage in holding that president accountable for sending the nation into an illegal and unconstitutional war based on lies. You can draw a straight line, as you highlighted at the top of this show, between the lack of accountability for that president and the lack, frankly, of well, it goes any, further back too. that well, it line does. doesn't start at Bush. It, it does. It does. But even even in 2009, when we remember that then President Obama coming into office uh, made very clear in an interview uh, when asked, was he going to allow his Justice Department to prosecute for the torture that occurred, the war crimes that occurred? Was he going to allow his Justice Department to prosecute for the crimes that the bankers committed leading to the fiscal crisis we were in at that time. And he said, we're going to look forward, not backward. Yeah. And, and, and that was a clear signal to people like Donald Trump that they could do that and far more and get away with it. I, uh, yes. I think that mistake cannot be made again, which is why we're not only calling to, uh, to be clear for impeachment and removal or rather disqualification of Donald Trump from ever holding office again, but we're also calling on the incoming attorney general designate Merrick Garland to establish a task force immediately upon his confirmation to investigate Trump and all of his associates for all federal crimes that they may have committed. There, there must be accountability under the law as well as under the impeachment process for Donald Trump and for his associates. Now, the political hurdle in this um at least one aspect, as I see it, there, or there's a couple. That, um, one is, um, for instance, with Obama, and this is something that may well echo with Biden. Uh, Obama won a lot of crossover Republican voters who did, you know, for whatever they were brought towards Obama or they did feel some shame over like how the Bush administration turned out. There was like, you know, he got a lot of crossover from that. And so I think the you know their thinking was well we're doing this so that we don't lose those people who don't want to you know like see us go after you know that we want to hang on to these republicans and they'll become embittered um like sort of there's an optics fight of it the political fight of it we don't want to lose these voters and that is that is the way a lot of people who are, you know, like fighting to make the Democrats better. They look at it. But over time, I start to wonder if some of these things, they don't prosecute them. They don't you know, they're not charging impeachment because they don't want to lose the ability to do that when they're in office. 
to some degree. I mean, I worry about that with the biggest, the biggest one in your book that I hammered home. And and when I went to a town hall uh, that Marsha Fudge held, I actually gave her your book and pleaded with her, like, please just read chapter one on the emoluments or, you know, like this, the case that's made here, it seems to be the strongest case. My concern is that, well, do Democrats, did they not pursue that because they want those sweet emoluments when they come around and they can be in office? Yeah, I mean, look, there's definitely the danger that we now set a precedent by not holding this past president accountable for the emoluments violations and so many other violations under the Constitution or the law, that we now set a precedent that other presidents, Democratic or Republican or Independent, any party can think they can get away with it too. So that that is a serious concern. And, you know, the other big point here, right, is that the fundamental principle of a democracy is that we're all uh, equal uh, under the law and that there's no one that's above uh, the law. And, and, and this is really going to be a test for our democracy and our country. Are we going to somehow carve out a a, a new exception here beyond the exceptions that have already unfortunately been carved out that, that somehow this president having incited an insurrection will not be held accountable that he's above the law. That is going to be the message if we don't hold them accountable. And I think it's critical that we fight to ensure that we do. Well, it seems like it's a, it's a, it's a rot that is, you know, it works its way up because there are, there's so many, you know, different, people who experience who do not experience justice um, the same way that other people do within our system who um, get to, you know, for instance, the story that I, I wrote today was about Timothy Lohman. Um, I put out a video report about the fact that he was being snuck onto a, a local semi-pro football team to play. He he's the one, uh, the officer, ex-officer who killed Tamir Rice. Mm-hmm. And so he's getting all this special treatment. He never went. He was convicted for that. And in the communities that are upset about him uh, not being prosecuted constantly experience a disparity. Of Absolutely. Justice. And Absolutely. so for it, it just seems almost like, well, if it's going on at that level, the, just the where, you know, the concrete is yes. America. Why wouldn't it bubble up to the top at that point? Why not think you can? And especially now with, you know, Trump ha- and, and so many others have to see. And if Trump isn't held accountable, cynical, shady, power hungry, narcissistic operators are going to just be like, well, I, I can do anything. Right. And, and, and to your point, it trickles up and it trickles down. Right. So people yes. who are in police uh, forces around the country who are thinking they, they might be able uh, to, to get away with behavior that is unlawful, that has to be held accountable at the same time, because that that is going to, you know, unfortunately continue to occur if it's not addressed, uh, you know, via the legal process and, and, and via ensuring that uh, there is oversight over over police departments when they're not uh, engaged in, in in carrying out the law uh, on a lawful in a lawful way, uh, you know, and uh, applying it equally uh, across the board. And I I do think this is a huge problem with our society right now. We have certainly systemic racism throughout. Uh, you know, our institutions that have to be addressed. And we have this idea uh, that those in power, whether they're in local positions of power or higher up, 
can somehow hold on to this claim that they may be above the law. And that, that's a very dangerous moment to to face for our country, but we've got to face it. Yeah. So the the big one was, and I realize we 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 go through this and there's that danger with the emoluments clause of of assuming everyone understands what that means, but it's essentially right. enriching yourself through the, the office that you're elected to. And, and my God, yeah, the, the instances of that was just as far as his travel, yes. um, you like itemize like, well, every time he went to Mar-a-Lago and all of the secret service that had come there, like all that money that went into his pocket, just him going to his own places. Yes. So, uh, you know, the emoluments clause, there's two of them, right? There's the foreign emoluments clause and the domestic emoluments clause. And the idea with the foreign emoluments clause that the framers had is that they didn't want uh, the president uh, to be beholden uh, to foreign interests uh, or, or, frankly, any federal official to be beholden uh, to foreign interests. And so that's why uh, the foreign emoluments clause makes clear that federal officials are barred from taking any financial benefits or uh, foreign payments from any foreign government. The domestic emoluments clause actually applies only to the president and makes clear that the president cannot get payments from state governments uh, or the federal government other than uh, the federal salary for the office of the president. So we know that going into the Oval Office on the day of his inauguration, which is why we co-launched that campaign for impeachment on the day of Trump's inauguration, he was already in violation of both of those clauses of the Constitution because he was refusing to divest from his business interests all over the world. And as a result, would be profiting off of the Oval Office in violation of those clauses. So that's really the essence of, of why they exist in the Constitution. And you're right that they're not something that people, uh, you know, necessarily taught in school. It's not a common uh, issue that that gets raised in prior presidencies. But now that we've had this past president willfully violate those clauses, I think it will gain more attention and, and needs to be addressed. It's it's an arcane word, but anybody gets it when you break it down yes. pretty quickly. Um, yeah. And so then... That leads into the, um, the foreign emoluments and solicitation and concealment of illegal foreign assistance. And this taps into this is where the case was primarily made for impeachment. Um, it was based on Russia and collusion. It's it's the most widely known yet. You know, it's still pretty it's muddy where everything there's a lot of moving parts to it. And, and what's standard and what's what's out of the norm and 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 yeah i mean you gotta that's definitely a a story where you have the the threads and the red the red yarn going all over the board um but i think one i mean from my perspective as as further left like in my heart of hearts i'm an i'm an anarchist just in like on principle i i want to see hierarchy flattened and more consensus in who has authority so not anarchy as in the, the Orwellian idea of like, we just break stuff and sm- it's like, no, it's a political philosophy. But um, what's worrisome to me and like, you know, paying attention to things on the left is seeing um, like how Russiagate got wielded towards people who were critical of the Democrats and, and, and things like that. And 
to whatever degree, you know, it, it does hold up as like it was a problem for Donald Trump. It has fanned this notion sort of in the popular con- consciousness of a lot of people who, you know, they follow the news, but they're not going much deeper than like, well, I read all of the major papers and I'm, I'm, I, I know that Russia is a problem. And it is fanning this paranoia of like Putin's everywhere and doing this. And it, it does. It gets wielded against um, people I follow, people I know when they don't want to engage with the merits of an argument and they just say, oh, you're only making that good argument because you secretly want to help Russia or you're a stooge or maybe you're a bot. And that's the one thing that that worried me about that being the, the what Democrats latched onto. Um, with the and and, yeah, and well, I saw just to button it up and then have yeah. you go at this, but Russia was also troubling for me because I saw that narrative. It was immediately lifted up and wielded as far as like it was the Russians who leaked the DNC emails to damage Hillary, and it was frustrating to see that that became the whole story of the DNC emails. Was oh my God, Russia did this not. Well, what's in the emails? I mean, we can say it's troubling that Russia's meddling, but it's, it was also just wielded as like, you know, no, 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 don't look, don't look in the emails. Let's just talk about how they how they got leaked, and and so that's where you know I saw the Russia issue really get latched onto by a lot of establishment Democrats, and why it makes sense to me that that was the. The, the argument they wanted to stay with and really hammer on. And there is a lot of salaciousness and there's a lot of real stuff there. And then there's a lot of stuff that's hard to make out, like I said. So I'm just curious to know, based on, you know, the arguments you made in your book, how satisfied are you with how that that argument played out in impeachment? And well, uh, very unsatisfied, uh, perhaps though for different reasons. So we were unsatisfied because so many of those establishment uh, elites in, in Washington hid behind the Mueller investigation and decided that the Mueller investigation was going to set us free and reveal the truth. And the reality is, is that that investigation was focused on a very narrow set of questions around violations of federal criminal law. And as we know, the impeachment clause deals with abuses of power, high crimes and misdemeanors, not statutory crimes under the federal criminal code, but rather the question of abuses of the office, abuses of power. And so we already felt from the standpoint of the focus on the Mueller investigation that we were focused on the wrong matter. This wasn't about, uh, you know, whether Robert Mueller was going to find criminal violations. Maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't. But from an impeachment standpoint, this was about, are there impeachable offenses that have been committed. And certainly one impeachment, impeachable offense that we highlighted in the book was the conspiracy uh, to coordinate with a foreign government to interfere in the U.S. election in November 2016. I think there was plenty of evidence to show that that occurred, uh, leading with the famous Trump Tower meeting that occurred in July of 2016, where, you know, members of the top echelon of of the Trump campaign, including Donald Trump Jr. met with an agent for uh, the Russian government to discuss, supposedly at least in starting out the the meeting, to discuss dirt that they had on Hillary to provide to the Trump campaign. Now, you don't go in uh, to that kind of meeting unless you're ready 
uh, to willfully violate the law. The law makes clear that you cannot solicit anything of value from a foreign government under federal campaign finance law. This is separate from the emoluments issue. This is a uh, federal legal question. And there they were willing to meet and discuss this, regardless of whether they got anything of value. And I know there's a debate about whether they did, um, but that showed their intent uh, to coordinate with a, a foreign government to interfere with U.S. election. And, that, and that's a high crime. Uh, and, and in fact, the framers made clear in their debate about the impeachment clause that if uh, an official came into power corruptly, that that would be a basis for removal. And, and that's what our argument was in that chapter of the book. But the other point that we were concerned about with the focus on the Mueller investigation was that it's solely focused uh, the you know discussion around that issue of Russian interference in the election, as important as that was, and left out many of the other impeachable offenses that the president had committed by then. The emoluments violations, the violations of the southern border and the treatment of children and their families, separating them in violation of human rights law, in violation of their due process guarantees, the racist abuses of power, uh, the president committed the obstruction of justice the president committed in trying to shut down that's that's another one the obstruction of justice yes uh, I, I that we actually have like a recurring character here with um that in in james comey correct yes, we do yeah i mean he was it, fired in may it, we should have had bush bush should have if you yeah if you want to recount that i mean honestly bush should have been impeached for obstructing justice based on the first time james comey made national news well i mean you know i i don't know how far i will go into that but i will say that james comey uh we know in in may of 2017 was fired because donald trump wanted to shut down that investigation and he wanted to protect mike flynn who we of course later pardoned mm. uh, for what he had done during the transition uh, in 2016, 2017. Isn't so, that an, is that an echo though of, or I, I have to, I might go back and just refresh my memory of it all. Um, but that James Comey blew the whistle on like a midnight firing or like they were trying, um, it was very dramatic. It was uh, like he was sick or, or Ashcroft was sick and Comey Ashcroft refused. And, and, and they were trying to essentially, um, I believe, allow the uh, further surveillance and torture to occur. And, yeah. And Comey blew the whistle on that. You're right. Yeah, they were um, trying to get Ashcroft to sign off on that in a in a not great state. And, yes. and Comey didn't feel comfortable and called that out. And that was, I just remember that being a shocking story at the time. It was, it was. Um, and, you know, I, 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 do, I do think that, once we knew that he, that Trump fired Comey in May 2017, uh, you know, there were alarm bells that went off everywhere. But of course, the response, as I say, ultimately was hide behind Miller, Mueller rather. Yeah. You know, go ahead and let Mueller take care of this. And so for two years, really, uh, we waited on Robert Mueller uh, to address these issues. And this is not anything against Robert Mueller. I mean, he, he was. No, the, no. I mean, it is more like you said, it's more against. Um, so you say, yeah, there were there was establishment Democrats or I mean, 
they couldn't have been monolithic though, as far as you know, you had Al Green at least. You had Al Green and you um, had Rashida Tlaib, but 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 many of them, yeah, absolutely, those people. But it never broke through to be like possible amongst the like your no, your and, status and quo certainly, Democrat. Certainly Speaker Pelosi's view was that we needed to wait on Robert Mueller's report. Right. And of course, you know, we know what Bill Barr did with that report and he's totally distorted it when it came out. Um, and, and that reliance on the Mueller investigation to protect the rule of law, protect the Constitution was misplaced. Um, now, there has been a fair amount written by Andrew Weissman, a former federal prosecutor in the Mueller team and others that they didn't go far enough. Uh, and that, that's a, really a whole separate discussion. But what we do know is that Congress stayed on the sidelines, other than people like Al Green, Rashid Tlaib, for the most part, Congress stayed on the sidelines waiting for the Mueller report. And that was a huge mistake. Now, was Mueller set out? I mean, was he set up to fail in some degree, like you said, because he was looking at and building an impeachment case, looking at it the wrong way, not looking at it as like these are high crimes. He wasn't it's really, really building place. an impeachment case. But there's clear. also I mean, building a case on whether there was uh, there, were, there were violations of criminal law. And of course, he had many prosecutions, yeah. including Mike Flynn and Roger Stone under that investigation. But he wasn't he actually wasn't building an impeachment case. That wasn't his mandate, which is exactly why Congress should never have dropped the ball. They could have had a parallel impeachment investigation while the Mueller investigation was going on. And it could have covered many other aspects of just dovetail together that didn't relate. You know, I mean, yeah. that that's the that's the problem we had and why we wrote the book is that there was way too much investment in this one federal criminal investigation rather than looking at the panoply of impeachable offenses the president had been committing. Is some of that fear, do you get the sense that, you know, like now they probably are going to have to worry about um, how flippant will the Republicans be with coming up with grounds to impeach Biden? Well, I mean, again, you know, facts matter, right? And and so far, uh, there there isn't any evidence that Joe Biden is engaging in corruption in the Oval Office. Um, I don't doubt for a moment that some who are opposed to Joe Biden will will use the impeachment uh, argument and try. And we know one of them, who's a QAnon conspiracy theorist, Marjorie Green, has already filed articles of impeachment against. That's um, yeah. Yeah. So but, it, you know, it, look, it, it beckons beyond that yeah. level. Then. And, and look, there were there were people who said, well, the reason why we don't want to file impeachment articles against Donald Trump is because it will just become a, a new political tool that everybody uses. But that's really a, a dangerous idea that we can't use this power the framers gave us to remove uh, a lawless president or a lawless federal official because we fear that others will misuse the power. We need to use it when it's the right time to use it. And, and unfortunately, I think, you know, when we came upon the first impeachment, uh, it was already too late. I mean, we were way beyond uh, the, the time to hold him accountable on emoluments violations and so many other violations he had occurred, he had committed. And, and it was a narrow impeachment. It was solely on the scandal from Ukraine. Um, and then we know that members of the, uh, of the Senate on the Republican side refused to convict, refused to even have any witnesses at that trial. And they are partly responsible for the insurrection that occurred 
on January 6, 2021, because they refused to remove this president when they had the evidence of his abuses of power back in that first impeachment trial. Um, so I think we're getting close to or we're closing in on, on the, all the grounds you established in the book. Um, next was abusing or improper use of law enforcement against critics. Um, similar to the emoluments, like this is another cynical one where I might say, well, I can I've seen, you know, the Democrats can wield, you know, wield, wield the Justice Department against critics. You know, I think just as recklessly, you know, it's debatable, obviously, but, you know, I get, I've been disturbed by that historically from both sides. So it makes me question whenever I see that, I'm, that's the when I that's the reason I would justify why. Well, we don't want to go after someone for doing that because we, we might want to do it later. Yeah, I mean, they, they, you're right. They may try to justify that. And we know, of course, there's a history under Richard Nixon, under J. Edgar Hoover of using misusing the law enforcement power to go after uh, political critics or those who are political opponents. But the more we continue, of course, not to uh, enforce this and, and, and have a standard where this is uh, impeachable, uh, the more it will occur. Uh, but you're right. There, there may have been a reluctance to, to deal with that in certain quarters because of the, of the nature of the charge. But I think really the biggest reluctance wasn't that. The biggest reluctance was this idea uh, that somehow it was going to be politically hurtful in the 2018 election cycle. And, and yet, when you look at a lot of polling about why people voted the way they did in the midterms in 2018, uh, they, a lot of them voted for accountability. A lot of them wanted to see uh, Donald Trump held accountable uh, for his lawless behavior. And, and so coming into 2019, it became harder for Speaker Pelosi to to push back against that train. She still held off until the fall of 2019 in doing anything, uh, which I think was a mistake. Uh, but I, I do think that the movement for impeachment gained further momentum coming into the new Congress in 2019 after that midterm election. Now, kind of connecting this all back <clears throat> to what you first started out with free speech for people, money and politics. Yes. I wonder how much that relates to why we don't see people who are willing to be principled and stand up for the rule of law and fundamental things and put themselves on the line and say, no, this is the time to do something radical like impeachment. It's yes, it's a it's a big thing and and move forward aggressively or and, and fearlessly on these investigations. If most of Congress is populated with people who are there because the right people can get money to get them elected, they're not there because they really give a shit about these things that uh, you and I are, are, are looking at and so troubled by and they, they are surrounded by and then there's a status quo effect of like, well, they're going along with it. I mean, this will be OK. And I, I'm just that just sort of popped in my head as I was thinking about, you know, getting to getting to brass tacks and, yes. and, and what, where is this cowardice lie and, and how do we get our Congress and Senate to, and to ever hold accountable the executive? Because in my lifetime, I've yet to really see it done forcefully and effectively. Yes. 
Well, this is a critical point you're making, Brian, and it is true that our system of big money dominance of our elections corrupts the process. Um, and in fact, Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Lessig has a whole argument about the dependence of corruption by institutions of government. He actually even Absolutely. argues that you don't have to show quid pro quo corruption, individuals who are being bribed or, or being corrupted to understand that the institutions themselves uh, are getting corrupted by this kind of system. And I think that's an important argument and, and the way it relates to, to our work, you know, we made a decision as an organization coming into 2017 that we couldn't be true to our mandate in taking on big money in politics and unchecked corporate power and corruption in government without dealing with the unprecedented corruption of the White House that was about to happen under Donald Trump. And that's why we extended our work to deal with impeachment. Some people ask, well, did you really go off the mission? No, it was very consistent uh, with the mission. The mission was about protecting democracy in our constitution and remains so today. I, I do still believe, and we are very engaged still on the fight to, to end big money in politics. And we see it as, as very related to the fight to ensure that there are no abuses of power by those in public office, that they are public servants and they need to act that way. Um, and you're, you're, you're definitely right. There's a culture, I think, in Washington that for many of them, they think, uh, you know, that they can get away with this. Now, there's also newer members of Congress who got elected without outspending their opponents. Uh, you know, AOC was famously outspent yeah, and that kind of can prove out. And, that and, proves the thesis I'm talking about as yeah. far as like, well, if you look at the people who, you know, ish, are, are opposed to getting having that money corrupt them. Yes. You see a lot more bravery and a lot more. That's, that's right. That's right. You do. And, and I think that's an important point to make here. And, and there are, you know, look, there are members of Congress who have been there for a while and they, too, uh, have focused on the dangers of this system of big money in politics and want to want to reform it. And yeah. there is, you know, a, a bill right now, HR one, which is a comprehensive bill of sweeping reforms that would help address these questions, including money in politics and, and help protect our elections and allow for public funding of elections, endorsing a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. And what stopped it in the past, it passed out of the last house of representatives, is, is a, uh, a filibuster uh, in the Senate. And so one of the big changes that has to occur before we get these other kinds of critical reforms is to end the filibuster in the Senate. And, and yeah. there is now that real possibility of ending it. And I've heard that is, song they? many, I've heard this song a lot of times, yeah. but people yeah. are actually starting to dance to it. And that's it, right. They're starting yeah. to dance to it. And, and there's going to be, I have to say, there's going to be accountability for those who have the power now, which is, of course, the Democrats in, in the Senate, in the House, and the White House, if they don't deliver, if they do not end this filibuster, this is, you know, Barack Obama spoke at, President Barack Obama spoke at John Lewis's memorial in July of 2020. He called uh, the filibuster a relic of Jim Crow, and it is. It's a relic of Jim Crow. It, it came out of that time of segregation, um, and it, it needs to go. Uh, and, and once it goes, then you can have majority rule in the U.S. Senate 
and you can pass these kinds of sweeping reform laws like HR1. And the fear of eliminating that is then if the Republicans have a narrow margin and that norm is gone, then they'll they'll do awful things with that ability. I mean, and, you know, and- it's, it's certainly an argument they make, but the fear is misguided because the Republicans will do that anyway. I mean, they, they, they've, they've already re- removed it for Supreme Court nominations. We, we got honestly, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and, and removing it because too, of the elimination of the filibuster. And removing it, too, it, it also, you know, it, it, it's going to dilute the power of more conservative Democrats who are problematic to passing good legislation. So, I mean, so, you know, on both sides, it's going to take away the power of the Republicans um, to to block things, but it'll also stop, you know, weaken that power in the of of Democrats who aren't so strong in the coalition towards change. Well, there's that issue. And of course, there's the other issue, which is the Senate as a body is a disproportionately unrepresentative yeah. institution. You know, uh, you have uh, Wyoming, which has two U.S. senators and California has two U.S. senators. And yet the the, the population size of California far, far exceeds uh, Wyoming's population. And yet, you know, they each get two senators in the Senate. So what you end up having is a disproportionately white minority uh, of the country having having more power in the Senate uh, than than they deserve. You know, if one person, one vote means anything, uh, it ought to mean that we have equal representation in our government. And it makes no sense uh, to have uh, uh, an institution that is so uh, disproportionately weighted uh, toward, you know, a system that, that doesn't allow for that equal representation. Now, at, at the very least, the, the filibuster has to be seen as the tip of that iceberg, that if you allow 60 senators, uh, you know, that you require rather 60 senators to pass any kind of bill, then you really are catering to that white minority, uh, you know, population uh, disproportionately being represented uh, in, in the U.S. Senate, and that is fundamentally anti-democratic. It's it ought to be majority rule. Uh, former former Senator Harry Reid, who used to be the majority leader, has said it's got to go. Uh, it's only a matter of when, not if. And now's the time uh, to remove the filibuster. That's an that's an excellent point, and um, so. From your vantage point and with your experience, where do you what do you see what, as the most effective place that your average person could put their time to see a fundamental change occur, like to really help out? Uh, I think that's everybody's frustration when you talk about these big systemic issues like money and politics. And I know I have thrown my time into different things. There have been like um, constitutional amendment campaigns that were seeking to uh, kind of use the state legislatures as a way to trigger that, that uh, constitutional convention. Um, there's, a, there's so many different strategies and it's such a big thing. Um, but where can people put a little bit of time or a little bit of effort in order to uh, make this situation get better and just kind of give you the last word on, on what you hope people could do to contribute. And if they want to check out your organization more, if you want yeah. to talk about what you're doing going into 2021, uh, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So first there's many, there's many issues for people to get engaged in. I, I don't want to suggest there's only one, uh, you know, issue for people to focus on. There, there's many fights 
across the board to to engage in protecting our democracy and our constitution, but also to uh, ensuring the promise of political equality for all and justice for all. Uh, you know, on our end of free speech for people, as I said, we're, we're focused on taking on big money in politics, on check corporate power, protecting our elections, fighting for free and fair elections and challenging corruption in our government. Uh, and we and we welcome people joining our, our efforts at free speech for people org. They can sign up at the website that, that you built, uh, you know, for us to, to learn more. Um, I would say that I think people organizing at a local level is critical uh, for these fights. So wherever you are, uh, you know, to be able to spread the word with your neighbors and your friends. That's to, I think that leads to a specific question yeah. is like, what do you see is like if, you know, because I'm all about local now after kind of having my heart broken in, in many presidential elections and getting swept yeah. up on the national. Con- I'm like, I really want to see what can I do and. And as a journalist, that's I'm really paying attention to what's happening in yes. my, in in the surrounding areas of my and on mostly with the Black Lives Matter beat and police. Right. And right. Um, but yeah, when I can find that, like, oh, you live in like I might actually end up living in Nina Turner's district. So if I have an ally like that that's going to fight against money in politics, um, then I think for me, that's somewhere I would put my energy into, you know, like getting different people elected at different levels. Yeah. Um, do people, I mean, not we're, 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 we're nonpartisan, so we don't, we don't really, you know, advocate for, Oh no, I'm, I'm doing that. That's me. That's me. But I mean, but I know people will want to get involved in campaigns and that, but where are the good pressure points? Yeah. No, I look, I think that one uh, key way for people to organize at the local level is to fight for model reform that can then be an example for other communities. So whether it's uh, seeking to uh, fight for a system of public funding elections or ending super PACs or ending foreign corporate money in our elections, we have model bills on ending super PACs and foreign corporate money in elections that we've been trying to get passed at the local level. Certainly the constitutional amendment fight can involve local fights. There's 22 states now on record, 800 plus communities across the country that have called for this amendment, that kind of organizing helps to build the overall amendment movement. Uh, you know, the, the fight on unchecked corporate power uh, is important. We, we've had, uh, you know, prior uh, to the 2016 election, we, we've had fights on, on dealing with corporate charter revocations from Massey Coal Energy Company, uh, you know, to uh, addressing the ways in which other companies have violated their corporate charter and should have it revoked uh, for that. And the most recent corporate charter revocation fight that's still ongoing is dissolving the Trump organization uh, itself. So these are other kinds of fights that, that people can engage in. Uh, I do think that fighting to protect our democracy uh, through serious reforms to ensure that people have an easier time to vote uh, that there's not voter suppression. Uh, the, these fights are also critical. And depending on where people live, uh, you know, they, they may be in a community uh, where there needs to be more done to ensure that we have uh, an equal uh, opportunity to, to cast our ballots. Uh, you know, we saw too much in the way of voter suppression in, in this last election, like we too often do. That's a, that's a story that doesn't get told a whole lot because, you know, that's a whole 
whole other episode because another episode. it's another instance of it's been I've watched that happen now, like so many, you know, yeah. from, from Bush and, and and knowing now, like, you know, the 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 the, the popular narrative is hanging chads and confused voters when it was really how many people were purged from the role. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it, 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 using deliberately flawed methodology. And, and then they and did that, that in my state in Ohio because yeah. they got away with it. And so, yeah, it's the same thing where right. that this just gets to go on. And so it never gets stamped out. Right. And that's that's the really frustrating thing with Trump. Uh, casting all this doubt on the election process and then a lot of like, you know, his people just buying into it and being angry about vote. It's like, oh, well, where were you people? This has been going on for so long. <laughs> like there's yeah. legitimate like the things he's talking about that, you know, with votes being like, you know, like being handled by shady operators as far as like the, the voting machines. Yeah, there's there's real problems with black box voting in this country. They didn't well, happen for you, no man. Question, a paper ballot based system would remove uh, all those arguments of doubt yeah. about the elections and being able to verify. But but I will say on voter suppression, it's kind of the mirror opposite of the voter fraud argument. The voter fraud argument, yeah. you have all these illegal votes, when in fact, there's no evidence over the many election cycles that you have any rampant voter fraud. There's a professor at Columbia University who studied this issue, and she's demonstrated time and time again in her studies how minuscule the percentage is of any kind of uh, prosecutions of people who engage in voter fraud. So what happens, though, is that the claim of voter fraud leads to laws which is which suppress the vote. So we have voter ID laws. We have these purges. We have all these things that happen based on this falsehood that there is rampant voter fraud, that there is when it's not happening. What we need to do is make it easier for people to vote, not harder for people to vote. And we shouldn't be requiring you know, these voter ID laws or or in fact purging people when they've, uh, you know, missed an election or moved. Exactly. It's kind of thing. That would be such a monumental task to pull off. Oh, yeah. Completely. And versus, you know, if I'm thinking of it just as like, well, I'm going to game this out in my head versus election fraud, you only need like a well-positioned person here, there and boards of elections to like close a poll site. Um, yeah. In some cases with flawed software, you just need to be in the room with a USB stick for a minute. Right. I mean, th those vulnerabilities do exist. But right. that, as you said, it's not voter fraud. No, no. That but is election fraud. And there's the so many different yeah places where it can happen with a few well-positioned shady operators. Right. Whereas the irony, fraud, come on. Yeah. No, but the irony here, right. Is that we had this pandemic. We still uh, sadly still have it. And so many States rightly shifted to make it easier to do mail-in voting. So here's the thing about mail-in voting, even in a, in a state that uses the electronic voting systems for in-person voting is that mail-in voting doesn't involve the electronic voting system, right? You you mail in your paper ballot, you mark your paper ballot by hand, uh, and then you mail it in. Uh, and and those paper ballots are verifiable. They can be you know recounted. You can see the intent of the voter. Uh, and so the problem that Donald Trump and his uh, team had is that they knew that so many people were going to be voting by mail, and it was going to frankly you know, be even more verifiable than if he was going to be able to get up there on election night in a pre-pandemic 
situation and claim fraud. It was a lot harder for him to make that claim when you had so much of paper ballots being yeah. used. And, and it so takes it, away poll site closings and moving them. Those yeah, which, which, which did happen. Tried and true. That's tried yeah. and true voter suppression. Yeah, and that and that did happen. But you're right. Many, many people, many millions of people voted by mail. Um, and so when he sought to stop that, you know, by sabotaging the U.S. Postal Service, uh, by doing all these things to make it more difficult, you know, ultimately, despite all that, you still had millions of people getting their ballots cast by mail. So when he stood up there in the wee hours of the night after the election, 2.30 in the morning, showed up to say it was a fraud, you know, his claim was that the tallies were changing, right, from the early results. Well, the reason why is because the mail-in ballots hadn't yet been counted. Yeah, all the nuances with like, well, it was like that because this state wouldn't let them start counting them till election day and they had a ton of million ballots. I mean, yeah. Yeah. That that anyway, so specious. Yeah, the ele- the election issue that that's like that's a whole other show. It is. <laughs> yeah, and I that was that was what led me to you was just seeing like, you know, having frustrations okay. with how how the the New York primary was was handled and you yeah. know, that's yeah. and and you know, if you're you know, you're nonpartisan so and and so am I in, in the, like, you know, that was an instance where we saw some shady stuff going on from, you know, Democratic well, side. We were trying down. to keep Bernie yeah, Sanders no out of power put all together yeah no, yeah know. yeah because honestly i mean like everybody who is in yeah. congress that is a problem with big money i'm pretty sure they would have rather lost with with uh as far as democrats they would have rather lost with hillary than won with bernie because he was there to take money out of politics and and people who want money in politics who are there they have an office because money is what they chase and who they serve they're not going to be happy about that guy being in power, no matter what party they are. So there's no question make- any, 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 any politician that challenges entrenched uh, power is going to run up against that entrenched power. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I do think that we have to be vigilant in protecting our democracy and making sure that primary elections don't get canceled altogether, which we saw in, in New York state. And I'm glad Andrew Yang brought that case uh, to prevent that from happening. Um, you know, even in a time of pandemic, we got to make sure people can vote and hold their elections. But we also, you know, we have to do it safely and we have to protect people. And that's why the vote by mail solution was so critical. Uh, and many states, as you know, did not allow vote by mail to happen easily. Texas was a place where we litigated, where really it was very difficult uh, to vote by mail if you were uh, 65 or younger than 65. And that meant many, many people had to show up for long lines on election day, uh, which we argued in that case was going to make it uh, less safe for people to cast their ballots. Um, and I, I think, you know, when we look at these states that, that didn't expand vote by mail, they, they are the same states that often want to suppress the vote. Um, and and uh, that was one new way to do it during the pandemic was to basically tell people, regardless of the safety and public health dangers, show up in line and wait there for hours in order to vote. That was a way of trying to discourage voting. It didn't work for a lot of voters. They were still going to show up, but it's a dangerous uh, dangerous road for, for election officials to take that they're going to uh, require that. And, and, and I do think going forward, we have to put further safeguards, including uh, a constitutional 
amendment to ensure the right to vote in our constitution, which is why uh, we wholly endorse that on our site as one of our democracy amendments, because we've got to have a uniform standard. It should not be that because you live in X state, you can vote more easily than people vote who live in Y state. You know, we ought to have a uniform standard of how we vote, um, and that ought to include all the things we've discussed in terms of uh, access to the ballot uh, on an easy basis without going through all these hurdles in order to exercise the franchise. Yeah, one day I want to have just like the whole pie in the sky. If I could reform voting, this is how it would be. I mean, I'm not opposed to, you know, using software because I'm I'm a developer by trade. Yeah. Um, but the, I there's I think that should be a mandate like that it should be open source because there's nothing yeah. insecure about open source. Every every vulnerability that's possible, it can be called out by people and you know what's under the hood. And so until that, you know, that I'd be a huge advocate for like, yeah, no, no government software should be private, in my opinion. I mean, well, that's right. I mean exactly. why, why, why do we even outsource to private voting companies? No, we should have like a, yeah, a government tech brigade of just like, exactly. people. cause honestly, you know, and, and I, I, I really i get into like development operations and how you set up a good workflow yeah. and you're working with a team and there's there if you don't if you know anything about developers um it's it can be a very democratic process because you know you do you do some work and you come back with the rest of the team and you say this is what i did right okay, everybody talks about how to make it better i mean right if, if that was how a lot of processes in the government were just like you know how do we make the dmv like the the, the most optimized system yeah. it is, and we yeah. We have people, you know, it's like going to work for the government tech team would be like going to work for Google and you make great right. solutions that improve people's lives. And there's, you're not just making some CEO rich. It, like I, as a tech person, I would love it if those opportunities existed well, in the government. Need, I think a lot of people would. No, you're right. And we need that transparency in, in all sectors of our government. Well, John, I want to thank you so much for all of your time. Um, I will make sure to plug all of the things because I know where all of them are. And thank you, Brian. I want to wish you best of luck in all your campaigns in 2021 and keep up the good fight. Thank you so much. I enjoy the conversation. Thanks for all your great work.